Blessings to Israel Ministries presents God First, a program committed to encouraging you to put God first while viewing life through the window of the Bible. Now in honor of the one and only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let's join Ryan C. Thomas for today's message. Greetings in the name of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and thank you for tuning in to the God First program. My name is Brian C. Thomas, and I am very honored and delighted to have today a special guest, Nathan Jones of Lamb and Lion Ministries, and it is such a privilege to have him. And we always get great responses and feedback from our audience when we have Nathan as a guest. So, Nathan, thank you for coming on today to speak with us. Well, the honor is all mine. It's a great blessing to to be speaking with you about one of our favorite subjects, Brian, Bible prophecy. That's right. That's right. Definitely my passion and your passion as well. And we just enjoy getting the message out concerning the soon return of Jesus Christ. Nathan is the web minister for Lamb and Lion Ministries, and I encourage you to please visit their website at lamblion.com to find out more information about Nathan. There you will also find tons of information on their website from their ministry director, Dr. Dave Reagan, Nathan Jones, and many of their great guests. And I highly recommend that you visit their site. Nathan is here to speak on the topic, Bible Prophecy, God's Order of Events. And I invited you on this topic, Nathan, because growing up, there were a lot of things that I heard concerning what is going to happen in the future with the return of Christ in eternity that I accepted as the truth. But as I began to realize that, hey, this is not exactly what the Bible is saying. For example, I had the impression that when we die, we go off to live in heaven. And that is where we spend eternity floating on clouds as disembodied spirits. But that is not exactly true. And there are a lot of myths out there concerning things of the future that get passed along that are not exactly accurate. So you are here to explain the proper order and clear up the cloudy areas for us as to what truly will happen on God's order of events. So can you begin by speaking on the church age? We will sort of step back a little in time, then come to the present and then to the future. And so how does the church age fit into Bible prophecy? Okay. Well, uh, funny enough, the church age really didn't fit into Bible prophecy. Uh, Many times it was called a mystery. It was not understood by the Old Testament prophets that they expected when the Messiah to come, that would be it. His kingdom would begin and, uh, that that would that would be it, and they didn't know that there was going to be an age called the that we do called the church age, which began at the day of Pentecost, when the church technically or you say officially formed, when the Lord gave uh, the apostles and the disciples gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they went out and they started sharing the gospel, and you can read that in Acts how the church started growing and flourishing. So the church age is actually the time period that we live in now, and it's uh, a time where the church can grow and flourish and the gospel get out. It, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews were the example of holy living. You had to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, and you had to follow the laws. And so people looked at the Jews, and they looked at Israel and said, okay, we want to join them and become like them. And so it all funneled into Israel. But the church age is the opposite. The church age funnels evangelism through its believers, out into the world. And so instead of everyone coming to Jerusalem, everybody goes out into the world. And the church age that we live in has got a great commission. Matthew 28, 19-20 reads, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And here, this is Jesus talking. This is the great commission where he's sending the church out into the world to get the gospel across the entire world. And and here Jesus says, to the very end of the age, and what he's talking about is the church age, Brian. Okay, great. So as you touched on, the church age began at the time when Jesus Christ left the earth, or shortly thereafter, correct? 
Correct, yeah. Uh, there's some debate whether it was uh, during Jesus' ministry or Jesus' ascension or the day of Pentecost. I believe it to be the day of Pentecost because immediately the apostles go out, they start witnessing, and that's when you start seeing the word church. You start seeing that 3,000 were added to the church, 5,000 were added to the church. So that's, to me, I believe the day of Pentecost is officially when the church age began. So that's when the church age began, and we are looking at about 2,000 years now that the church age has been in existence. So what brings the church age to a close, or is there a close to the church age? Yes, the church age does have an ending, and that is the rapture of the church. And you can read that in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and that reads, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And that is a, a passage, along with a number of other passages, that talk about the return of Jesus for the church. And uh, what happens is that Jesus comes in the clouds, there's a loud trumpet, an archangel calls, and all the believers who are alive in Christ will hear that. The dead in Christ, those who have already died from during the church age, will be resurrected. Those of us who are, are saved and alive will be resurrected just after them and will be taken up with Jesus in the clouds to be with the Lord forever. We'll get our new glorified bodies, and uh, the rest of the people who had disbelieved Jesus and rejected his salvation will be left behind. So, church age comes to a close when Jesus Christ returns for the rapture of the church. Then what happens? Do we go off to heaven to live for eternity? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, it, technically speaking, yes, uh, we do go on for eternity. But uh, there is a, a kind of a parallel time that's going to be happening during that time. There will be a seven-year tribulation that will befall the earth. It's a seven years of intense wrath upon the world for its continued disobedience to God. And the purpose of that is God wants people to come and accept him as Savior. So what he does is he really he has 21 intense judgments that come along the world, and it kind of forces people to choose God or not. So he will uh, use that time period for him to pour out his wrath upon the evil of the world, and he's also going to use it to regather Israel back in the land and kind of force them to acknowledge that Jesus is their Messiah. And three, he wants the Messiah to return and fight for an unbelieving remnant. So that covers quite a lot, which we'll discuss uh, coming up for the tribulation, but that's not for the church. The church will not be here for the tribulation. We are promised by God over and over again that we will be spared the wrath of God. Uh, Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 says, Wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And probably the, the best verse for assuring Christians they will not have to live through that seven-year tribulation is Revelation 3:10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So, there are the unbelievers who are stuck here for seven years, maybe a, a little more, and we'll get into that. But for those of us who are raptured up to heaven, there are three things that will happen to us while we're up in heaven. And number one is the judgment seat of Christ. This is also called the judgment of the just. And the judgment of the just is for believers to uh, receive their rewards while they're in heaven. Now, we're already saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, the only way to get saved. So when we get up there, that judgment isn't for our salvation. That judgment is to receive the rewards that we've received in heaven. You can find that in 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Revelation 19.6-9. So number one, the church, while we're in heaven, will receive our judgment for the good things we've done. And we'll be judged based on our motives and the quality of our work and the quantity of our work and how we actually use those gifts that God gave us 
to serve him while we were on the earth. Second thing we'll do, after we receive those rewards, and they're spiritual rewards, that, you know, the Bible talks about crowns and robes and new names and just all sorts of, we've got new bodies, and it's, it's pretty wonderful. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. But more uh, importantly, I guess, is that Jesus will hold what's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's like a, a giant party, a giant, uh, the church is called the Bride of Christ, and, and God will have fellowship with man again, uh, one-on-one, that deep personal relationship. And so, you know, I get that idea from some people that Jesus is, you know, dull and God is stuffy, but, you know, every time you saw Jesus on the earth, right, he was always having a party, he was always enjoying, he loved to celebrate good things, and he's going to celebrate that his church, after 2,000 plus years, will be with him in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the third thing that we'll be doing while we're up there is preparing to return with Christ back to earth. When we turn with Christ at his second coming. And we'll get into that a little later when we get to the end of tribulation. But those are the three things that believers can look forward to when we get to heaven. Great. Now, back to the judgment seat of Christ for a moment. I hear quite often where people will say we will have to stand before God someday and answer to every single thing that we've ever done. All of our sins and wicked thoughts are going to be broadcast for all to see as if on a huge billboard in heaven. And everyone is going to see it as we stand there embarrassed and ashamed before God. Will that really be the case? Well, you know, the whole idea of a, a big billboard or a big TV to me sounds like quite an exaggeration. Uh <laughs> You know, we are all destined to die once and then face judgment. The Bible tells us that. But, again, this is a celebration. This is a gift-giving of the Lord. And, you know, how many people show up at a birthday party, and then the parent reads a laundry list of all the kids' failings before he gives them his birthday present? Right. Yeah, it it doesn't work that way. Yes, I think there will be regrets. The the Bible kind of shows an example of, of chaff, you know, you you get rid of the the chaff out of the grain. That's the weeds and stuff that dried with the grain. That's the stuff that we just failed to do, or we wasted our time. You know, we pursued money, we pursued clothes, we pursued cars, we we watched TV too much. We we just didn't do the things we were supposed to do on earth. The the gifts that God gave us, we didn't use properly. And yeah, those will affect our gifts. Uh, some verses talk about how our rewards, if you know, if we seek attention here while on earth for the things we do, well, that's that's the reward that, ah, you know, people say good job, they forget about, that's it. But our eternal rewards are things that we did for Christ out of our heart and love for him that last forever. And I love this, uh, Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made himself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So, Brian, I'm excited. It's, it's going to be a great time where the Lord is going to uh, give us spiritual rewards. And, you know, it's not all about us. Because you look at the 24 elders that are described by John in Revelation that circle the throne of God. And what do they do with those gifts, those crowns, all the stuff the Lord's given them? They take it off and they put it at the feet of God and they use them as acts of worship. So, Brian, our rewards in heaven are eternal reminders of our worship of the Lord, and we'll use those to worship the Lord forever. So isn't it neat, you know, if you help a homeless person or share the gospel with somebody or, you know, anything to do to help the kingdom of the Lord here, the spiritual kingdom on earth, it's got eternal value that will be used to worship the Lord forever. And that's an exciting time. So, no, I don't think it's going to be a, a, a battery where we're up there and we're just crying the whole time. And, oh, it's awful. I think the Lord is going to use it as a time of celebration and worship. And he's got seven years to do it. So well, it'll be a great, I just think it'll just be awesome. Totally awesome. 
and I am looking forward to it. So the rapture of the church occurs. We go to heaven. We are at the judgment seat. We get our rewards. The marriage supper of the lamb occurs. And then you say we are preparing to return to earth. But as these things are taking place in heaven, something else is occurring down on earth that you touched on earlier. So can you speak to that for a moment and explain the purpose of what is taking place on earth? Sure. Well, the first thing that you see when you're in, well, we, I should say we wouldn't see when we're in heaven is we're celebrating, we're rejoicing, we're, we're partying, you could say, with the Lord up in heaven for seven years. But also, during that seven years, those left behind on the earth have to suffer the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God, uh, Jeremiah 37 says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time where God takes his focus back off of the church, because the church is not there anymore. He removes the restrainer, that church influence, the Holy Spirit through the church that holds the evil back in the world, and he makes the world so bad that it forces primarily Israel, because God's focus is back on his promises to Israel, that focuses Israel to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Now, it's an awful time, absolutely awful. There's 21 judgments that will happen. And before that, and if I just might add this, we're not sure about this one particular battle. It's called Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes this Gog-Magog battle. It's this battle where Russia, Iran, Turkey, uh, Libya, and a number of other countries join as a coalition and try to annihilate Israel. And God steps back into human history so everyone can see. He annihilates those armies. It says he sets fire to their countries. The forces in Joel says they, they retreat back to the other northmost parts, possibly Siberia, and God is made known to the world again. And I, I believe that this prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 called the Gog-Magog battle happens probably either just after the rapture and before the tribulation or just as the tribulation begins. But either way, this a terrible attack that's going to come on Israel will be very close to, the, to or near to the beginning of the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is, again, that seven-year time period, which you can read in Revelation and in Daniel, where God pours his wrath out upon the world to get, to, to get them to, to turn back to him. You know, sometimes you have to have terrible disasters uh, you think of Hurricane Katrina that came through a few years back, and it just utterly annihilated uh, New Orleans. And But the faith of many people in God were restored because of that natural disaster. So the Lord uses disasters to, to bring repentance, to bring people back to him. And that's the primary reason for the tribulation. The tribulation starts when the Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel. And you can read that in Daniel 9, 26, and 27. And that will begin exactly the seven-year countdown of how the tribulation will last. The Bible divides the judgments into uh, sets of seven. Seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. And for a total of 21 judgments that pretty much annihilate most of the Earth's population that sees this world ruler come on the scene. He has an answer for all the world's crises. It sees terrible famine. It sees a one-world religion. It sees oppression uh, by the, it's called a false prophet. He's the number one man that works for the Antichrist. And it also sees uh, Satan and his demons are uh, in the middle of the tribulation, try to take over heaven once again, and God casts them out. And so they're on earth, and they know their time is short, so Satan possesses the Antichrist. And basically, the Antichrist spends most of his time oppressing the Jews and oppressing those who come to know Jesus as their Savior. And so that culminates all the way to the end of the tribulation, which is the next prophetic thing, which is the Battle of Armageddon. 
And the Battle of Armageddon is a term that we hear so often, not just from Christians, but even in the secular world, they use that phrase very often when things happen, such as natural disasters and especially wars. You hear often people say this looks like Armageddon. So please talk, if you will, about the Battle of Armageddon, where it is located and who are the key players in this event. Well, the Battle of Armageddon isn't a bunch of drillers who get on a space shuttle and fly up to an asteroid and blow it up. That's not... You know, we've heard that with Bruce Willis movies, and and everyone seems obsessed with Armageddon. They think that any battle is Armageddon. But Armageddon is the battle to end all battles. Uh, Revelation 19, you can read about that in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. And it speaks of this final battle at the end of the tribulation, which we, you know, we call Armageddon. And it's um, it, actually, people think it's one battle, but it's a battle that kind of covers a few different locations. Now, the Antichrist has conquered the world, but the armies from the east, more than likely China and maybe Japan and some of the other eastern nations, India, join with him. They want to rebel against the Antichrist. So they cross over the Euphrates, which is dried up, and they enter in northern Israel in this valley of Jezreel. And I've been there twice, and it is a massive valley. Napoleon had once said that all the armies of the world could be fielded on that plain, and it really can. It is gigantic. And so in the valley of Jezreel, the Antichrist armies will start fighting the uh, eastern king's armies, uh, China and whatnot, and they'll start annihilating each other. Well, that's in the middle of that is when Jesus returns onto the scene in what's called the second coming, and we'll get that in a moment. But during about, Jesus will come, and with just a word, he's going to destroy. I mean, all he has to do is speak. God's that powerful. He, when they say he holds the world together, he, he really does. <laughs> he holds right. the world together. And he just says a word, and those two armies fall apart. They just, they just die, and it says that there's so much blood, it's up to the horse's bridle. You know, we're talking about four, five, six feet of blood filling that valley. And again, it's a massive valley. So we're talking about a lot of the remains of humanity getting together to fight. Well, Jesus then, he leaves that area, he moves towards Jerusalem, and he engages the Antichrist armies. He's also have an army there, and they're besieging Jerusalem. Uh, Israel was already trampled by the Gentiles, trampled by the Antichrist uh, at the middle of the tribulation, and he's been still trampling Jerusalem and trying to totally besiege it and defeat it, because Satan knows if he can kill the Jews, He's thwarted God's plan. So he really thinks he's getting close to doing that. But again, when Jesus arrives, he defeats them. And when he defeats them, he sentenced the Antichrist and the false prophet to the lake of fire. And Satan, he holds into uh, or casts into a deep pit as a holding area for a thousand years. And that's that's the Battle of Armageddon. It's, it, there's a lot of infighting, and, and so many people will die during that time. But the true victor is Jesus when he comes, and that's the next or coinciding prophetic event, which is the second coming of Christ. With this battle of Armageddon, I've heard many people say that the scripture seems to hint that nuclear warfare will be very prominent. As it's coming to a close and it looks as if mankind is going to totally destroy itself through nuclear warfare and many other means. So do you see that in the battle of Armageddon and during the tribulation at all, this nuclear warfare? It's a weird mix. Um, you can read a lot of effects of nuclear, for, like the, uh, you know, the skin melts off their bodies. Mm-hmm. If you remember the first Indiana Jones movie, you know, I was a kid, they had a... I just had nightmares for weeks watching that Nazi melt when he mm-hmm. opened the Ark of the Covenant, you know. And right. that's kind of how it's described is that the, when Jesus comes, it, there's a melt. And I don't know if that's Jesus himself doing that or they're nuking each other or what. Now, we do know earlier during the tribulation when the Antichrist 
starts his campaign after he makes the treaty with Israel, he starts galloping around the world conquering it, and a third of the world is destroyed just in the first year or two of the tribulation. And then there's more um, destruction, and pretty much half the world, that's 3.5 billion people, will be dead within the first three and a half years. And a lot of the effects that you read in the judgments afterwards, in the bowl judgments especially, it, it sounds like the effects of nuclear radiation. The atmosphere isn't there on the earth to quite protect it from the solar radiation, so people are scorched. People are covered in boils as if, uh, you know, how radiation gives a lot of boils on the skin and it melts you and your teeth start rotting out. So uh, there's definitely the nuclear arsenal, I believe, the Bible describes pretty well, especially when it talks about Damascus being destroyed in one day by Israel, is, is nuclear in nature. But we also read that they, they, a lot of them are riding horses. They're shooting bows and arrows. And it's almost like by the end of the tribulation, the infrastructure of the world will be so destroyed that people will resort to having to go back to horses again. Or, you know, they're out of bullets, so they're going to have to fashion bows and arrows. So there's a weird mix of ultimate technology and old-fashioned warfare at the Armageddon. Excellent points. So as the Battle of Armageddon is escalating and it looks as if the earth will be completely destroyed, as you mentioned, Jesus comes back to earth and brings it all to a close. This is known as the second coming. Those of us who are raptured in the rapture of the church, we return with him, correct? Oh, amen. That's that's uh, quite an... <laughs> you know, that's 500 verses in the Old Testament and one in every 25 in the New Testament talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh it's, it, there's, there's nothing more prophesied in the Bible, even more than the first coming, which was only 300 prophecies. 500 prophecies talk about Jesus' second coming. It is a, an event that the Bible wants us to know about. And so we can read about the tribulation and know that it culminates in Jesus' victory where he comes again. And you, you want to read a lot of great verses about the second coming in Zechariah 14, 1 through 21, uh, Matthew 24, and Mark 13, Luke 21, and especially Revelation 19. They're all about the second coming of Jesus. And that's where it, you can read, especially in Revelation 19, that Jesus returns at, and with his angelic forces and with us who are uh, saved and uh, or have been raptured already, and we come back with Jesus. And you know what? We don't engage the enemy. <laughs> you know, here's your chance. We don't. Jesus does, does all the work, and, and he defeats them all by himself, which, you know, praise the Lord, he can do that. But, uh, yeah, it's, just, it, that is going to be the ultimate victory of Jesus over the Antichrist and over his enemies, and we'll be there to witness it. Amen. That's going to be a great day, and I often imagine it happening with the people dwelling on earth during the tribulation one day, looking up, and there comes Jesus cracking the sky, and we will all be riding with him on white horses. That is going to be just a magnificent scene. And what's neat is that if one of the reasons, and one of the primary reasons for the tribulation is for Israel to be so forced into a position of compromise that they finally admit that the Messiah is Jesus Christ, the Savior. And it talks about how when Jesus returns, those in Israel will mourn and weep when they realize that for 2,000 years they could have had the Savior, they could have had Jesus Christ, but they had denied him all that time. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, a third of the, the remainder of the Jews will turn to Jesus as Savior and accept their Messiah when he returns. And that's an that's just an awesome thing to, to rejoice in the Lord, too, because the Jews right now, many of them have blinders on. They just can't see that Jesus is the Messiah, despite the evidence. And there's many Messianic Jews out there, but, but overall, most Jews do not understand and will not accept that Jesus is the Messiah. But when Jesus returns, 
they will see him as the Messiah that they've been looking for, and they will reap, weep, it says, and it will just be in anguish that, oh, we've missed it all this time. We've had to go through all this to realize that Jesus is our Savior, and they'll accept him and welcome with open arms when he comes back. Amen. And you make such an excellent point because right now you're right. There is a very small percentage of the Jewish people who are messianic. But as you said, at that time, they will accept Christ and realize that he is the Messiah. And that is when sort of the whole plan comes together, where the church and the nation of Israel, the Jews, will sort of all be merged together as one big happy family in Christ. Right. Upon Jesus' second coming, you know, he defeats the Antichrist, the false prophet. He sends Satan and the demons, uh, uh, I assume the demons to hell and Satan to a deep pit. And uh, that's when we get another prophecy where the, the Lord gathers all the believing, all the, we call the elect, from the four corners of the world together for another judgment. And this is the next prophetic event called the sheep-goat judgment. Yes, please speak to that now. You can read about the sheep-goat judgment and the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, 36-43. Uh, Matthew 25 is the main text for the sheep-goat judgment. And so we've got the judgment of the just, which was in heaven, which is uh, for believers to receive the rewards. And this is the second out of three judgments, the sheep goat judgment. And that's for all the people on the earth at the end of the tribulation. Now, we know the tribulation is seven years long. Uh, Revelation 11.3 says it's two periods of 1,260 days. But Daniel 12.11 says 1,290 days, and then it says 1,335 days. So we got like 30 days here and 45 days there for a total of 75 days. So people are wondering, what is that 75 days after the tribulation, but before Jesus sets up his kingdom, what's that for? And many theologians believe that that is the 75 days will be used to judge the people of the world in what's called the sheep-goat judgment. Now, the sheep-goat judgment uh, will be on the earth. Uh, Joel elaborates and says it's going to be held in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So that could be the Kidron Valley near Jerusalem. Uh, we're not sure. The whole topography of Israel will be pretty pretty changed and decimated during that time. But we know in, in Israel there will be the holding where all these people are gathered. And the purpose of it is is to send all those who took the mark of the Antichrist, who took that loyalty mark and rejected Jesus as their Savior, they will be judged, and the Bible says they're considered the goats. They're the ones that are destined to, to be placed in Hades and await final judgment. The rest of them that survived the tribulation, and let me say, if anyone survived those 21 judgments, it's pretty, mm -hmm. pretty there are very few people left on the planet by then. I, I can't tell you how many, I don't know, but there'll be a, just a remnant left of, of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and they will be considered the sheep, and they will be able to live on into Christ's kingdom, and they'll remain in their, their human uh, bodies, their earthly bodies, you could say. So that's the sheep goat judgment. All right. I want to speak for a moment on another thing that is a myth. I heard this often growing up and I hear it often today that when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to destroy the earth, burn it up, and we will go off to heaven with him and the earth will cease to exist. But based on what you are telling us, that is not the case. No, no, no. God's, God's got a plan and he's not done with the Jews. I mean, he didn't do all that just to get some Jews saved and then go up to heaven and that be that. He made certain promises to the Jewish people as a nation. They are specially set apart. I mean, the, a lot of people, even Christians, don't like that idea. But the Lord made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would have the land from the Euphrates River to the Nile River, that they would have a someone on the throne of David 
forever, that they would be a special priestly group of people, and that Jesus is set apart a thousand years, and we call it the millennial kingdom, milla meaning thousand, a millennial thousand-year kingdom of Jesus to rule and reign on the earth from Jerusalem. And the Jewish people, those who are saved, the Jews who are saved, and live on into that thousand years, will be considered a, a special priestly group. Now, you and I, Brian, will be there in our glorified bodies, helping those living in their earthly bodies, and uh, it says that we will reign during that time, too. We will be administrators and, and uh, officials, and uh, we will just get opportunity teachers to, to help those people during that thousand years. It, the Bible says the curse will be partly lifted so that the uh, wolf will lie down with the lamb and the uh, lion will eat straw like an ox. I guess they won't be carnivorous anymore. Kids can play with poisonous uh, snakes, and it's just it's a time where all that decimation of the tribulation will be erased by Jesus, will rebuild the planet very quickly, and it will be a garden like it was. Now, the, the curse won't be totally removed because people in their earthly bodies will still want to sin. You know, They're still going to want to do things because that temptation's there. But it won't be Satan and the demons tempting them anymore. It'll be, they'll all be the ones responsible for their own uh, falling into sin. So there will be sin during the millennial kingdom, but Jesus will rule and reign. People can go up to Jesus and talk to Jesus. And we'll be get there, and it'll be the most peaceful time on the planet during Jesus' millennial reign. Of Amen. That is going to be a wonderful time. And there is going to be a difference in character, for lack of a better word, in Jesus Christ in looking at his first coming versus his second coming. At his first coming, he came as a suffering lamb. He did not receive glorification from the world. He was humiliated, ridiculed, mocked, you name it. But when he comes back, the Bible says he will be as a conquering lion. And that ties in directly to the name of your ministry, Lamb and Lion. But you caught on to that. That's good. <laughs> People get it mixed up. I know uh, I first did when I heard it. I, I kept calling it Lion Lamb. And Dr. Reagan <laughs> jokes that over the years, people have had some crazy names for our ministries like Layman Blind and Lemon and Lime. Help <laughs> people remember our ministries. It's just like you said. Jesus first came as a suffering lamb to sacrifice himself on our behalf. But then he returns. He'll return as the conquering lion. He'll be the king of Judah, the king of the world. And so, yes, our ministry is named after that, Lamb and Lion Ministries, and our website, lamblion.com. And uh, explaining that helps people remember our URL. Right, right. Now, during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, this will be a theocracy. He will reign supreme as the leader of the entire world, and he's going to have his government. So that means that any leader of any nation, such as a president or prime minister, they will all have to answer to Jesus Christ concerning the rules and laws that he will make, correct? Oh, correct. Um, there's even an example given uh, of Syria and Egypt. And uh, during that time period, there'll be a feast each year, and everyone will come into Jerusalem and celebrate that feast. And the nations that uh, start rebelling and refuse to go, God will hold the water back and give them a drought until they they repent of that. And But what's neat is that you read about Syria today, where uh, their president Assad is slaughtering their own people. There's rebellion. We know that Israel is going to have to deal with Syria prophetically. Damascus will be destroyed. The oldest city in the world will be destroyed. We read about Egypt, where they knocked down their president Mubarak. They're getting rid of the peace treaty with Israel, and the Muslim Brotherhood is taking over. I mean, these two nations hate Israel with a burning passion, a satanic fuel that drives them to hate Israel. And yet when we read in the Millennial Kingdom, first populated by only uh, people who believe in Christ, these nations are reformed, and the reform of believing people. So Egypt is a Christian nation once more. Syria is a Christian nation. The whole world begins as a Christian nation. Now, over time, children are born to these people, and they too will have to make a decision for Christ or not. 
And over that thousand years, it also says that the lifespan of people will be considered very long. Uh, if a child dies at 100, they're considered just a babe almost. So we know that the lifespans that before the flood will return again during the millennial kingdom. And those children, even in their long lifespans, will choose God or not. And that's where we get to the next prophetic event that happens where God releases Satan from the pit. So when Jesus Christ comes back, he sets up his millennial kingdom. It will last 1,000 years. At the beginning of his kingdom, Satan is locked into the bottomless pit by an angel and will be unable to influence the people on earth. As you stated, children will be born during the 1,000-year reign who will have to make a decision concerning Christ. And, well, unfortunately, many will reject him. The earth's population will be great due to longer lifespans, among many other things. And so there will be a lot who will, who will refuse to accept Christ. And at the end of the millennial reign, Satan will be released from the pit, come to earth to influence the inhabitants of the earth. And then what will happen? Well, like you said, uh, there'll be a huge population on the planet. There'll be people still living in their fleshly bodies. They'll still want to sin, but they don't have the rallying point to, to rally around and totally declare their independence from God. Uh, amazing. They live in a paradise. They have Jesus there loving them. It's the best hum the earth has been since the Garden of Eden. And yet people will still want to refuse to accept Jesus as Savior. They'll still want to rebel against him. They'll still want to do their own sinful things that hurt their bodies and hurt other people. And as a rallying point, God releases Satan from the pit. And it says immediately that Satan goes out among the planet. He gathers the nations, the peoples that want to rebel against God, and he leads a revolt into Jerusalem against Jesus. And just like Armageddon, with just a few words, Jesus totally defeats that those armies. Uh, they probably don't even have weapons because it says that during the Millennial Kingdom that people have beaten their swords into plowshares and pruning hooks. In other words, uh, there won't be any weapons of war during that time. So I don't know what Satan plans on attacking with maybe you know, big sticks with nails in them or something. I don't know. <laughs> He's going to attack, and Jesus puts them down. And you can read about that in Revelation 20, uh, your audience, and I'm sure you have two that they have, they want to rebel against God. And it's amazing. It's amazing that humanity can be so depraved that even in the, a utopia like it will be, they will st join Satan and try to fight and think that they can overcome the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that uh, is also referenced, it's called the second Gog-Magog battle. It has a lot of similarities to the first one, but this is a worldwide scope, not just a few nations against Israel. Yeah, and thank you so much for pointing that out, because so many are surprised to hear that there will be two Gog-Magog wars in the future, one prior to the Millennial Kingdom and one at the close of the Millennial Kingdom. And so it is at this time that Satan will be dealt with once and for all, for all eternity. So what will be the ultimate fate of Satan and all of his followers at this final Gog-Magog battle? Well, you can read that in uh, Revelation 20, starting with verse 7. It says, when the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. They number their like the sand on the seashore, which, see, Brian, that's really sad, so many people. But they march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. A fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So... The Satan and his demons and who will be sent down there into hell, finally, praise the Lord, forever and ever Satan will be in hell with the false prophet and the Antichrist a thousand years earlier who are during the tribulation period. And this is when you get Revelation 20, verse 11. It starts talking about the judgment of the dead. Now, I told you there was three judgments, the judgments of the just, the sheep goat judgment, and then we've got what's called the great white throne judgment. 
And that is a judgment not for believers, but for those who rejected the Lord, those who rebelled against God, both alive and dead. And they are resurrected from the holding place in Hades. And they are judged based on their works, just like the Christians were. But you know what they're missing? They're missing the ultimate work that saves them, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They had refused that all their lives. And so they don't. that work isn't there, and they, those are their good works, even if they were good people in life. They didn't do enough to get to heaven, because it's impossible to do enough good works to get to heaven. The Bible says that. Our, it says our works are like filthy rags. No, it, without Jesus' work on the cross, they'll be found wanting. Jesus will open the books of life, the Lamb's book of life, which is the book of life that has all the people who have accepted him by faith over the centuries, and along with Satan, who's already been thrown, he will throw all those who rejected him into hell, which is also called the second death or the lake of fire. And it's uh, Jesus' final victory over sin and death. That's it. No more sin, no more death. Those who wanted to be God, to leave him alone, well, they will get that. But they still have the punishment of their sins upon them, and they have to pay that punishment because God's a just God. He's a loving God, but... He's also a just God, and they have to pay that punishment, and they'll go to hell. So for the atheists who say that when we die, we go off into nothingness, there will be a rude awakening for them when they find that not only will their spirit continue on, but their physical bodies will be resurrected for judgment and punishment. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they go around saying there's nothing after this life, well, you know, how would they know? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. None of them ever died to come back, and even if they could, they couldn't come back because they had believed that they're annihilated. It's It's ridiculous. There, it's a wish, it's a hope that they have that God, and you know, I was interested, I get through the ministry, I answer the questions that come in, and we had this one atheist come, and atheists always come in with all these evidences they say for why God can't exist, and they try to try to just dumbfound you with all these evidences they say, and I was listening to this guy rant about this or that, and you know, he finally paused, he broke down, and it was the most refreshing conversation, uh, email conversation I ever had with him. He says, you know what? I really do believe there's a God. But you know what? I don't like that there's two choices. I don't like it's either heaven with him forever or hell while I'm destroyed. Why can't God, and he used a lot of explicatives, just leave me alone? Why can't I just be left alone by God? And then the veil came over his face again, so to speak. He started with all his arguments why God doesn't exist, even though he just told me he did. And, you know, he was back in that stupor again. But atheists, I, I think at their heart, at least the ones I've talked to, you could tell. They don't spend your entire life trying to disprove something unless you really believe it exists. Right. So they really do believe there's a God. And you're right. It'll be a terribly rude awakening when they stand before God, rejecting him all their lives, and God will say, you've got what you want. You wanted me to be out of your life. I will totally be out of your life. But unfortunately, the Bible tells us that God is our life. He's what holds us together. He's what binds us. And without him, we are alone and desolate and rejected, and that's the choice they make. And it's sad. It's, it's awfully sad because they will spend eternity in hell where there's fire and there's loneliness, there's this feeling of falling, there's darkness, there's no fellowship with God, and you're trapped with your memories forever. It's an awful, awful place, and it should be a great motivator to get believers in Christ out there sharing the gospel with those who are lost. Amen to that. So once the great white throne judgment happens, this is when God will address sin completely for all eternity. And then the Bible says a new heaven and a new earth will come in place. So can you speak on that for a moment? Revelation 21 has a wonderful description of our eternal home in heaven. You know, Brian, we were created to have fellowship with the Lord forever. That's our purpose in existence, is to fellowship with the Lord forever. And it's not to do it in this current 
sinful condition and not being able to see God face to face, we will see God face to face once more. And Revelation 21 tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So we are told that we will be it with the Lord forever in a new heaven, and that new heaven is what's called the New Jerusalem. It's a super city that God's building. It's about 1,500 miles wide and uh, long and high. Maybe it's pyramid-shaped, maybe it's cube-shaped, I don't know. If it was on the earth, it would stretch from the Atlantic Ocean to Colorado and from one border uh, in Canada down to Mexico and another. I mean, it's a super city. And you need a, a revived earth, a redeemed creation. I mean, the creation's under a curse, but the curse will totally be lifted. God will reform the earth, and heaven will be on earth. The new Jerusalem will be on the new earth, and that will be the capital city where we'll live. And man, it is awesome. It, it says that the God dwells in there and we get to see God finally face to face our our uh, glorified bodies have the capability of seeing God you know our earthly bodies just can't hack seeing God we just the, the the flesh is weak our eyes would melt out I mean he's just that powerful and that strong but our glorified bodies could see him it says he's the light of that city so if there is sun and moon and stars they, they will have light but they'll be uh, weaker than the light from God it says that the city is built out of all the precious metals and jewels, uh, the gold is clear. It talks about foundations, uh, 12 foundations made of gold and silver and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, different stones, but the streets are made of gold. There's giant pearls for the gates. And, you know, that's all materialistic stuff. That's all wonderful. But the, the, the heart of heaven is God and that will be with God. And it talks about the throne room of God and we have access to the throne room and how a river of life flows from that throne and we'll get to see the tree of life you know that we read about in genesis is there and it produces crops once a month for 12 months and it provides food for the nations and there we live in fellowship with god there's no sorrow and no tears uh it's there's no suffering and it's perfect joy and the new jerusalem is the the city the capital city of the universe and the bible doesn't tell us but i think since we have a forever to be with god that all that creation he made out there, all those planets and galaxies and stars, which are being discovered more and more every day, is God's domain. And who knows? Maybe he'll let us go out there and explore them. Maybe when he says that we'll be governors and, and mayors over cities, uh, you know, maybe that's whole planets or solar systems. <laughs> I mean, it can boggle the mind. Right. We have eternity to explore God's wonders, to get to know God to work and, and learn. We could have like 10 PhDs in the first 100 years. I mean, the, the learning just never ends. The fellowship with the Lord never ends. The fellowship with all those loved ones we've lost and who are with us is there forever. And that's what the Bible says. And that is God's victory over sin. So what you see here with all the Bible prophecies, it started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect world. They had fellowship with God. They walked and talked with him. And then sin broke it. And God has used all these thousands of years to get us back to that fellowship with God forever. Sin will be forgotten. Uh, Isaiah 65, 17 as another verse says, Behold, I will create a new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Everything that was sinful and evil in the world will be forgotten. And we'll spend forever in fellowship with the Lord again. And that that is the overall plan of God for the world, is to bring us back into fellowship with him forever. It's going to be a wonderful time. I so much look forward to it. It's going to be great. Well, like you said in the beginning of the program, when growing up, this, this false idea that 
some people get is that we die, we're a bunch of ghosts floating around, bored to death on clouds playing harps. I mean, man, awful. And who can get excited about that, you know? And I think Satan uses that. Satan uses that false idea of heaven to get people sidetracked and think, well, gee, I better enjoy life on earth because heaven sure sounds dull. Hmm. But heaven is awesome if people just read about it. Just just open up Revelation 21 and 22, and, and you can read about how amazing our eternal life is going to be with, with God. And that's something to get excited about and to share with other people and uh, to get as many people as possible to, to lead them to the Lord so they can share in it too one day. Amen. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on to speak on this topic. I always enjoy your expertise, as do the listeners as well. It really helps us as Christians as we learn and as we see what is really going to happen. I think it gets us more motivated to go out and proclaim the gospel, and it strengthens our testimony. So thank you so much. And do you have any final words for our audience concerning this topic and how they can find your ministry? Sure. Uh, If you're listening, you've heard what the God's plan for the ages is. You know what God's purpose in your life is to have fellowship with him and while you're on earth to do good works with him. So give your life to the Lord. Accept Jesus Christ in faith. He died for your sins because he loves you and he wants you to be saved. He wants to share eternity with you. And that is just worth saying, Dear Lord, please forgive me my sins and be my Savior. You just, just pray and, and out of your heart express your repentance for what you've done wrong and ask Jesus to be your Savior. After that, go Show the world that you've accepted Jesus as your Savior by being baptized in the water. And join a church so you can have fellowship and you can uh, learn about the Lord in Bible study and prayer and worship. And uh, if you need resources to know more about Bible prophecy, please visit our website, www.lamblion.com. As Brian said, Jesus came first as a suffering lamb. He's coming back as a conquering lion. We have a lot of articles uh, in television shows, Christ and Prophecy with Dr. David Reagan, and you can read those program, uh, articles and watch those programs and learn more about Jesus. We also have a big conference coming up in June, uh, the very last weekend of June, and the subject is Israel and Bible prophecy, and you'll learn a lot. We have some great speakers. And, Brian, you'll be there too, I hear. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, people get to meet you, and uh, I'd be happy to meet you and share just the Lord's wonderful promises that he has for us there. I am looking forward to it as well. Absolutely. Well, again, Nathan, thank you for a wonderful message. And to our listeners, the time is near. If you have not yet accepted Christ, please do so while you have the time. And for those of us who are already Christians, please take this message and go out to proclaim the coming of our great Messiah and all the wonderful things that we have to look forward to. So until next time, keep looking up because Christ is coming soon and many blessings to all. You've been listening to Bible teacher Brian C. Thomas, founder and president of Blessings to Israel Ministries. Brian and Blessings to Israel Ministries reserve all copyright protections under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at our website, BlessingsToIsrael.com. Until next time, remember to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and bless God's great nation of Israel.